Okay, let's do this. Hello, my name is Boo and I'm your host today. Welcome to Women Who Self-Care. This podcast seeks to encourage you to put your health and your ambitions first. In the past, the role of women was clearly defined. We were the homemakers, the childcare givers, and our place was at home. Today, after a muddy fight for justice and equality, the role of self-identifying women is open to be redefined. We want to define our role as being ambitious, capable, worthy, accepting, successful, forceful, competitive, And yes, caring, nurturing, empathetic, homemakers, policy creators, gold medalists, and Nobel Prize winners. (gasps) Anything we want. But we must make sure that this trajectory continues. A pandemic will not let us slip back into tired traditional gender roles. Oh, no. So we are encouraging, no, no, demanding that you put yourself first. We are interviewing incredible women on this podcast. Women who have and are putting themselves first and in return have reaped the rewards of financial, emotional, physical and spiritual success. We'll uncover the different ways in which you can look after yourself, nurture your desires and inspire you to take action. Listen and enjoy. And if you want, you can come and join our community. We host events that will connect you to other people, both online and we are brand new. So if you want to help us make this work, please follow us on Instagram at Women Who Self Care and sign up to our mailing list on our website's landing page, womenwhoselfcare.com. I'm so happy that you're listening to Women Who Self Care. Let's get on with the first episode. Today we have on Anna Lawson. Anna Lawson is so cool and just a little FYI. Anna and I went to school together, so I do know Anna quite well. Anna's a chemical engineer and energy consultant. She's also an amazing triathlete. She's competed in the Kona Ironman twice, which is, by the way, home to the Ironman World Championships. And for the benefit of those who don't know what a triathlon is, well, it's a try. So it's three things. You go swimming and then you hop and your bike and you cycle and then you finish off the race by running and an iron man is essentially a triathlon on crack <laughs> because you are swimming for 2.4 miles which is 3.86 kilometers then you're hopping on your bike and cycling for 112 miles which is 180.25 kilometers and then you're doing a marathon So, by the way, that's 26.22 miles or 42.20 kilometres. On top of that, Kona is known to be notoriously difficult because the weather in Hawaii is hot. You know, it's 30 degrees and it's humid and it's windy and also the terrain is supposed to be really tough. So anyone doing an Ironman is insanely fit and anyone doing an Ironman in Kona is next level. And we have that next level on the episode today. And Anna's going to speak to us about training for triathlons and what it's like being a female engineer, how she got into engineering, and also talking a little bit about her passion project. She helps to run the Climate Cocktail Club. But Anna, I'll let you explain. What is the Climate Cocktail Club? And also, welcome onto the podcast. Hey Boo, thanks so much for having me on. Really excited to be here. Oh, just got to quickly interrupt. Mine and Anna's audio sometimes sounds a little bit disjointed from the podcast. We're doing this remotely, so sometimes the audio isn't perfect, so please bear with. So I also, um, separately outside of work, volunteer for a fantastic organisation, which is the Climate Cocktail Club which is a organisation that puts on events, or used to, <laughs> around London, um, which are all in the idea of getting people talking about climate change on a conversational level. So we put on these events, they normally have a theme, we'll bring in 
like key speakers from different companies or charities. Um, we'll have cocktails, of course, very important. Um, and we'll have information up around the room. So lots of infographics and things for people to come along, educate themselves, make conversations, network, although I, we kind of hate using that word because it's all meant to be on kind of an informal level. So you're just enjoying yourself and having a cocktail, but you're talking about climate change. And it's this idea of making it a normal thing. It's, it's not a scary thing or a negative thing per se. It's about, you know, joining people together to find solutions. So I do that at the minute. Unfortunately, obviously our events are, are virtual. Um, so we've been doing some YouTube events, but normally they are all around London um, as part of a wider organisation, which is actually um, starting to get a bit more global. So we actually started mm. in Ireland and we've got a few pop-ups around the world. So oh, cool. yeah, it's good. Check it out. Very it out. cool. So that is Climate Cocktail Club on Instagram for any of those who would like to join their events. But Anna, how are you actually making time or managing your time around this voluntary position and training for your triathlons or Ironmans, which by the way, listeners, you're going to find out later just how much time Anna commits to her training. Newsflash, it's a lot. <laughs> um, and your job as a engineer. It kind of, to me, it sounds a bit busy, quite stressful, but I'm guessing self-care for you is maybe intertwined with your training. So is your sport part of your self-care? Yeah, I would say so. And it's funny because, um, you know, you ask like how I, how I self-care around work and if I find it stressful. And I have to say to start with, my work is fantastic. Um, the company is brilliant and it's rather, you know, I have to work overtime or I'm too stressed. Um, I've, I've got some great people at work that I talk to who can totally help me de-stress and, you know, just talk, talk. when I'm anxious, I can talk to a problem with them and they convince me that life isn't too bad. But um, yeah, sport for me has become the perfect way for me to blow away stress. And it's funny because I actually um, tried to start meditating, which obviously a lot of people talk about nowadays about, you know, mindfulness and meditation. And I, I find it really hard to sit still. I can really struggle to switch my brain off and just stop thinking. I struggle to sleep at night because my brain is, is wearing loads. Um, but I actually find that when I run or when I cycle or when I swim, that is when I meditate, I think, because I don't have to think about what I'm doing. I can just go for a run for an hour, not think about, you know, having to put one foot forward. You just naturally do it. And that's when my brain sort of carts off and I feel like I'm just breathing out and anything that I've been worried about at work, anything that's stressing me out is just completely put into perspective. Um, and I, I stop worrying about it and I, I come back and I feel so much calmer and, I feel like I have a new way of thinking about how to tackle any problem I have. Mm. Yeah, it does, it does sound like meditation in that it gives your mind just a rest from all the thoughts and things that are going around. I'm the same with yoga. I mean, I do that yoga and it's either a really tough power session and I'm connecting with my body and so I zone out for everything else and it all becomes about that pose or if it's a slower kind of yoga, it all becomes about my awareness of breath in my body. So yoga, triathlons, quite different. <laughs> How did you get into competing in triathlons, Anna? Where did it all start? So I never actually really did that much sport when I was younger. Um, definitely not any team sports or anything that was majorly cardio-based. Um, and then I went to university and did what I'm sure a lot of people do and thought, right, I want to do something active and do some sort of gym session or something like HIT, like high intensity interval training to keep me in shape, you know, to make me feel good and 
unfortunately at the time I, was, I thought it would make me look good and I cared kind of about the aesthetics of it. And so I remember walking around my um, freshers' fair at university and was looking at the different sports. And I've always been a bit rubbish at sports. I've never been too good at catching a ball. In fact, no, I'm pretty awful at catching a ball. Um, and so I was like, what on earth can I do? Everyone looks so serious. And I noticed that the running club did sort of these circuit sessions that were like high-intensity interval training. And so I thought, brilliant, this is, this is all I want. I can sign up for running. It's pretty cheap. I don't need anything. I don't really have to do the running part, but I can go to these circuit sessions every week and I'll make some friends. Um, and so I stuck my name down and I went to a session and that kind of was the end of, end of it for me because I went to one run, um, made up, made a couple of friends on that run and everyone was just so inviting. It was super chilled. It was go as fast or as slow as you want to. And I actually think I ended up running around at the back of the group with who at the time was a women's captain who was still a really close dear friend of mine, um, and she went as slow as I wanted to go because I did not run. Um, and from that moment, I was like, these people are good people. They're really great. And they became some of my closest friends throughout university um, and just really got me addicted to running, addicted to the people, the fact that you can travel with it. You can go anywhere and go for a run. And so we'd go on adventures. The races themselves were so much fun. It didn't really matter how fast you went. Um, you just, you know, you go, you turn up for the race. And then afterwards, you go food and you're with everyone and you go and explore whether you're in Wales or Scotland or just around London. Um, yeah, it was always really good fun. So that got me running. And then through that, the triathlon club was admittedly a lot smaller at university because it's a, ten, a bit more complicated, I guess, the sports. So fewer people do it. But um, they were quite close to the running club. And so I had friends who overlapped with that. And speaking to some of the guys who did it, um, kind of convinced me it would be quite fun to get a bike and give it a go and so in my second year of university I was like right that's it I'm gonna buy a bike and yeah again back of the pack had lots of cake stops mid very short cycles but built up from the start um and yeah did my first triathlon I think in my third year of university which is really good fun oh wow okay so it was quite a staggered approach it wasn't a you know Okay, here we go. All or nothing. Let's go triathlon. <laughs> it was a little bit of the time. Yeah, exactly. No, I gave running a go first and got my fitness up a bit. Um, I think it would have been a bit of a shock to the system to jump in. <laughs> yeah. But I know that a lot of people, you know, they one day they decide they want to do triathlon and they, they sign up. And I've had friends who've decided to sign up to an Ironman and they've not even started training. So What? It's possible. <gasps> it's doable. But I eased myself in a little bit more. I mean, that's what I feel like I would do. I mean, my first triathlon is a year away and I've always started training. <laughs> but you know the people, as you said, that just sign up willy-nilly. I would, I mean, they must just have the most amazing self-belief or sort of fuck it, now or never sort of attitude. But what about swimming, Anna? Because I've been told by many people that swimming is their worst sport. Oh, God. Well, yeah, I'm <laughs> ashamed to admit that I am definitely one of those triathletes who does not like swimming as much. And I think, you know what, I think it's because a lot of us find it the hardest. And naturally, as humans, you don't really enjoy doing stuff you're not necessarily that good at. Um, and so a lot of us shy away from it. Um, so I started, I, I could swim when I was younger. I could swim as a child, but I hadn't really swum properly since I was about eight. And then I remember going with my best friend <laughs> to the pool and we were like, right, we're going to start triathlon. Let's do this. Let's just go and swim 200 meters and see how it feels. And it was possibly the longest 200 meters of my life. I swallowed half the pool. I was coughing and spluttering <laughs> and it was so tiring. Um, 
and we were like right I think we need something more severe than this what? um <laughs> <Logic>. <laughs> so, thankfully my triathlon club at university put on swim coaching so we joined that and we started off like you know back of the pack we're in the slow lane um and gradually got into it but having a team of people that you know will be there at 7 a.m on a Tuesday morning forces you out of bed and you know you're all there bleary-eyed some of you are probably still hungover or drunk from the <laughs> night before but you you turn up and you get it done mm. and it was that team camaraderie was brilliant and we'd all go for breakfast afterwards um which is something I missed from going out of uni it was really good fun um so yeah I kind of got into it from that and then you you know you there's so much on the internet about how to train and how to build yourself up. And I had some fantastic triathletes who were older than me at university um, and younger, actually, who could advise and, and give direction on how to train. And so I, I slowly started planning my time and building it up more. Um, and then from moving from university, I'm part of a triathlon club in London. And again, they put on coach swimming sessions and you're part of a team. My coach is fantastic. She is the most hilarious woman if you try and skip a set or slow down she will yell at you and make sure you keep moving but she's so much fun um and she's really helped me to really push myself because if I say I can't do something or I can't keep up the so-and-so um I swim with quite a lot of guys and they're very fast so just be like Anna shut up and go (laughs) stop talking and swim and uh, you know that's the attitude you you want and you need um and she makes it really good fun yeah I mean it's true you it's it's a weird masochistic relationship between a coach or a PT and yourself, but you're not going to do anything if someone's like, come on, go on, can you do it, please? You need someone to literally be like a military sergeant yep. and do it. 100%. 100%. <laughs> so you have your job, you have your voluntary work, you have your triathlon training, nay, your Ironman <laughs> training. So how are you managing your time between all of those things, Anna? Like, what does your average day look like? And can you tell me a little bit about Kona? Because that is such, that's not just any race, is it? Oh, wow. Okay. So I've been to Kona twice. I'm quite lucky. Um, The first time I went, I was a student and I was in my final year. So I was writing my dissertation and I was doing a big group project um, and was also training for, for Kona and trying to fit it all in. That was probably the least I've slept in all my life. I think I was averaging like five or six hours a night. And I think you just get to the stage where you're so wired that, and you drink coffee so frequently, it just, it just manages. Um, I was lucky that so many of my friends do triathlon, that part of my socializing is just spending time with my friends training. So I could get the training hours done while with people, which was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I'd be lying if I said that at times it hasn't been hard and generally, you know, um, being in relationships and stuff is pretty difficult unless you both do triathlon, which frequently um, with previous boyfriends, they haven't. And so I've kind of had to, you know, say, OK, I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. I'm going to go for a cycle and I'll be back in a few hours and I'll wake you up when I get back. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> and that's just the way it's been. And it's, it's been fun and it's a challenge. Um, and it's I think it's part of what I enjoy is, is fitting it all in. So uh, an average week, um, I train maybe between 14 and 18 hours, I think, at the minute. Um, oh, my God. Which, which isn't, doesn't actually feel too bad right now. I guess there aren't many races on because of everything with coronavirus and with lockdown being on. Um, you know, there's not that much we can do. And so the training is sort of building you up, but it's not like crazy lots of hours just before a race. Um, and so I find that quite manageable, particularly because of coronavirus, meaning that we're all working from home oh my goodness, it's given me so much more time. And so at one point when I was working and I was commuting to work, I'd get up sort of 
six o'clock at the latest probably there was there was a period of time over winter that i was getting up at five to do a couple of hours training on the bike but thankfully that's a thing of the past um oh my god and so i'd be able to train before work and then i'd commute into work or now i just sort of roll around to the desk um <laughs> same and then after work i'd have another session sometimes at lunchtime i'll have a session um oh my god anna and then yeah <laughs> God, so when do you make time to rest and recover? I know for naturally sporty, sort of active people, recovery can be difficult, actually. It can be difficult to be still. But I know when I was, before COVID, uh, working full-time as a yoga teacher, you know, cycling everywhere, teaching, and just I, and training, I felt just physically exhausted all the time. And it wasn't actually until lockdown did I realise, like, oh, I just... I just I'm a person who needs more recovery days and more rest time. So what do you do to ensure that you recover and, you know, do recover in triathlons? Yeah, and I think that's such an important thing and it's definitely massively overlooked for, for everybody, particularly triathletes, but also just anyone doing sport. You forget how important that is. And I think when you're young you can have a feeling of being invincible and you'll you know, you'll bounce back and you'll be fine. But I definitely wake up some mornings. I mean, this morning, for example, I woke up and my legs were so tight. I went for a run quite late last night and I was like, I feel like I've been hit by a bus and I have to get up and go and swim. And I was like, how am I going to do this? And I'm very lucky right now. I have a coach now. So I, I, I started with my coach at the end of last year. And before that, um, I was doing pretty well. But at the end of the summer, I injured myself quite badly. And I think that was simply because I was doing so much and I wasn't giving my, myself that time to recover and really respecting my body and allowing it the time, sleeping enough, eating, you know, making sure I was eating all the right things and, um, yeah, mentally recovering. And so I started with a coach who's helped me get into a routine a lot more of making sure that the recovery is as important and I'm stretching properly and I'm, you know, having hours after my workout to just chill out, to not rush anywhere um, to not fly off to see friends and stuff, which is what I used to do, is just jam pack all my time. I mean, classic um, Londoner. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I think, in a way, lockdown has been a blessing that everyone's had to slow down. And so it's made me realise I don't need to live at a million miles an hour all the time. And that sometimes it's good to finish work, do a run session, and then just sit on my bum and drink a cup of tea <laughs> and let my legs chill out. Clever. Um, Mm. which has been so good yeah. for me. I just can't get my head around. Did you say you do 14 hours a week? That's what I'm doing at the minute. Um, my bigger weeks will be like 18 <gasps> 20, which... No! Oh, my God, boo. I'm, this isn't even that much. Like, no. a lot of my friends are doing, like, 20, 25 hours. It's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> How are you making time for that? Because I know there's, well, there's a will, there's a way, but seriously, that isn't 24 hours. That's insane. It's weird. I think you, you, over time it gradually builds. Um, so obviously at first I didn't start training like this and you absolutely do not have to. Like, I want to make that so clear. You can do triathlon on, on fewer than 10 hours a week. Um, you can do it on a few hours a week. You know, it's completely up to you. Um, and I've slowly built it up and so now it feels normal. And so I would always do something every day. I very rarely have a day off and that's just because my body prefers it. If I have a day off, I find that the day after I'm super stiff and kind of struggling. Um, so keeping moving is good for me, but you know, then I started integrating doing two sessions a day and I'd be like, right, I'll do some each night as well um, and have the day to recover in between. And probably the next day I'd be shattered. But you then get used to it and then you're like, OK, well, I can do back to back double days. And you, you work it up and, and it feels it now feels normal to me and it feels natural. Um, and I actually find it hard to have time off now. But I think that's because my brain enjoys the stimulus and totally can relate. Um, the routine. Yeah. Mm. It's 
It's interesting with recovery because if you're a person who moves a lot, it can actually be kind of daunting, if not anxiety-inducing, to be still. Yeah. And I remember having this conversation with my dad, who back in the day was really into climbing and, you know, very active. And him saying, you know, recovery doesn't actually have to just be, you know, turn into a couch potato for a couple of days or whatever. It can be, you know, if you're doing something with your arms, you're, you've been climbing, for instance, the next day you rest by... You don't have to sit down, but you go for a nice walk. You know, something that's restful and restorative doesn't always have to be just sitting and doing nothing. You know, obviously there is absolutely a time and a place for sitting and doing nothing. But if I look at my students, for each instance, in yoga, um, if you've not had an injury in your lower back and it's causing you a lot of pain, it's probably because you're just not moving enough. Yeah, and quite often they're caused by people sitting still for a long period of time and working at a desk or something. Oh, yeah, like Um, undoubtedly. Hyperextension of the lower back is so common. Completely. So regarding fueling that movement, um, I mean, you just have to eat so much. When I am training a lot, I get so hungry. So I think you're plant-based, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm plant-based. I've been vegan for a couple of years now, maybe. Maybe a lot longer. So what do you eat kind of in training i'm guessing a lot of carbohydrates to be able to help give you the energy yeah exactly it's um it's kind of described as a fourth discipline of triathlon because it's so important and you know you can't overlook it at all and that's for training and racing like in both respects um i'd say that i yeah like you say i'm vegan but i eat what i would call like a sensible balance of um carbohydrates and protein um and fat so it's not like i eat purely carbs I eat a pretty balanced diet, but, you know, it's making sure you eat back. And if your body's craving something, just give it to your body. Like you're, you know, you need it. That's why you're having that craving. Um, so, yeah, I guess for me being vegan, I'm kind of conscious that I need to make sure I'm getting everything I need. And so making sure I get enough protein, enough iron. Um, I take some supplements. I take vitamin B12 supplements. Other than that, I'm not too calculated about what I eat. You can be in triathlon. You can be super geeky about it and and work it all out, which I think is brilliant. And it definitely helps you perform better. And for races, I'll work it all out and I'll make sure, you know, I'm consuming enough calories for how much I'm burning. Um, For day-to-day life, I think that's a little bit too much for me mentally. I don't don't think it's always healthy for you to think about food in such a scientific way. Yeah. Um, And I think especially as, you know, a young female, there are so many problems with mental health around food and I think everyone's susceptible to that, regardless of whether you're an athlete and you're working out constantly um, or whether you're not that sporty. So I try and steer away from overthinking it. Um, But yeah, so day to day, I eat porridge every morning. Well, I actually eat overnight oats because they're so much easier, so much less washing up. And it means I can sort them out the night before and feel organized for the morning. And I get back from my session and I can eat straight away. Um, and then I eat loads of pulses um, and grains and loads and loads of fruit and veg, like so much fruit and veg. Um, and then plenty of tofu and stuff that I get plenty of protein in. Um, and I just tend to listen to my body. And if if halfway through the afternoon, I'm absolutely starving, I'll have some toast or have some rice cakes with something or have some cake. Frequently, I have <laughs> a cake break. Um, Same. <laughs> yeah. I'm not shy of eating chocolate and things like that so good and and neither should you you know and I think this is where a majority of problems come from we sort of bastardize certain foods don't we we make them illegal kind of thing and then as soon as you make something off limits it then becomes so desirable <laughs> and I'm not saying at all that you know just go out and eat whatever you want like because obviously chocolate and things are delicious but 
and and having an awareness that you know certain substances like sugar are highly addictive so of course you're going to crave them more but equally it's about okay well maybe i do need more energy if i'm really hungry eat you know we're, we're trying to stick to eating breakfast lunch and yeah. dinner but actually Maybe you just need to eat a massive fucking lunch and leave it for a little bit. Or maybe you are missing breakfast that morning. Just be more intuitive. And control it too yeah, much. exactly. And just enjoy the pleasure of eating yeah. more rather than thinking of it as fueling. I've actually learned that loads from you, from, from your Instagram posts about listening to your body um, and listening to cravings and seeing how you feel. Um, particularly as a woman at different times of the month, what you might crave at that point. Mm. And I found that really stuck with me. Um, for being like, yeah, you know what? I just need to listen to myself. And if if I'm suddenly craving loads of carbs a day, then I probably just need carbs and that's why I'm craving it. Um, and I found that so useful. And I think doing sports, um, particularly extreme sports, but I think any sport, you do learn to dial into your body and really listen to it and understand it. And like, for example, during a race, I can tell if I need carbs, I can tell if I need more water, if I need sodium, because that's a massive thing for hydration. Um, and it's, it's about learning to listen to that. And I think... It's, it's the same as, you know, doing things like yoga, which I've started trying to do um, sort of once a week with Ooh. lockdown. Um, it's helped me really listen to my body and understand where I have aches and pains or I have little niggles um, and understanding like what my body is saying to me. And if a certain part of my body is tired and if I have a weakness somewhere. And I think it's, it's the same with eating. It's, it's about having that kind of understanding um, of yourself. Yeah, it's, it's intuition, isn't yeah. it? 100%. So. With regards to self-care now directly, you're obviously looking after yourself by fueling yourself really well, but is there anything that you do that's directly <laughs> self-care related, you know, hashtag self-care that you do that then makes you yeah. feel better and helps you carry on with your day? I, I would say that I do. Um, I'm not sure if they're like the conventional things that you believe are self-care, but I think that's actually such an important point that self-care isn't just you know, certain beauty routines and things. No, yeah. It's what helps um, you survive. To me, yeah, exactly. It's, it's the things that make you feel good intrinsically, like what makes you happy. Um, so obviously spending time with my boyfriend, spending time with my friends, spending time with the people that value and make me feel good or make me make me more of the person I want to be um, will naturally make me feel better. So I prioritise that. I really prioritise the time I spend with people. Um, but then just for me, just for what makes me feel good, I love cooking. I cook pretty much all my meals. Yeah. Yay. So my boyfriend's also vegan. And so both of us are really into doing creative food. And there's so much stuff out there, particularly if you're vegan, that's really processed. Yes, so we've weird. tried to learn how to make our own stuff, how to make our own fake meat, how to know what's exactly what's Wait, going into our food. You can make your own fake meat, Anna. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, and it's not actually made from loads of weird ingredients, which is kind of nice. Um, it's made from a type of flour, and then we add in loads of spices and sauces, and it comes out super tasty. We make our own bread, um, just little things like that, that actually, when we're doing it, we find really fun to do together. Um, and yeah, that helps you relax. In terms of like what we'd call probably more stereotypical self-care, I do definitely have little routines. So being someone who trains as much as I do... Um, I try and look after my hair. You might, well, boo, you'll know this, but anyone who knows me, I have ridiculously curly hair, like super curly, super thick, Beautiful. really long. It's absolutely wild. And as a child or growing up as a teenager, I hated it because 
it really just was not in fashion to have such curly hair. <laughs> and it was a nightmare. Um, but nowadays, because I shower perhaps twice a day sometimes, I think today I'm going to shower three times. Whoa. There's no point even worrying about it. You know, you just yeah. have to embrace it and love it. And um, so a big part of my routine is like making sure I'm looking after my hair. So I have like, you know, my lush shampoos, which are solid. So they've not got any plastic waste with them. Um, and they're super good for my hair. And then looking after my skin because I swim so much. And I get eczema. And so I pretend to get eczema on my face, which is quite unfortunate. Um, so making sure I'm looking after my skin, making sure I'm using the right moisturizers and, um, you know, just keeping tabs on looking after stuff. I do my nails. That's another thing that really relaxes me. Do you? And I just think that when I look down and my nails are done, I'm just like, mm. right, Anna, you know, it might feel like life's falling apart. But <laughs> you have got your shit together right now because you've got your nails done. <laughs> so you know it's so common i feel like so many people are saying this i frankly literally could not give less of a shit about my nails i they're chipped right now and i just can't maintain them and if i do make them look pretty they just chip immediately and then they just look more awful yeah i get that i I actually do i do my nails with like gels so they actually well last and that's partly because when i was younger i used to horse ride and if you ride horses or around them like there's absolutely no chance that they survive your your nails just get destroyed um and then i obviously moved straight on cycling where you're covered in chain grease and stuff all the time and i found that unless my nails were like industrial style they don't last um and so it's quite funny because i can be on a ride and i can my chain will come off and i'm covered in chain grease i've probably got up my face and don't realize (laughs) i've got sweat everywhere and probably a million flies stuck to me from going downhill um, but my nails are done, so <laughs> <laughs> they look intact. <laughs> Priorities, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so we've spoken about triathlons, your volunteer work, etc. What about how you make your bread and butter, Anna? You're an engineer, and statistically, it's very male-dominated. So it's very interesting when uh, we're speaking to a female engineer. So how did you get into engineering? You know what initially sparked your interest first and foremost and then you know did you follow the classic university internship job route or I know that your company does apprenticeships so how did you get into it Anna? Yeah so it was kind of the the normal route that I went through university to do it um what sparked it was kind of what I think a lot of young people tend to do is decide what they're good at at school and then go uh what do I do with all this so I was kind of stronger at science and maths and so I happened to have a really good teacher at school um, who was really really supportive and kind of counseled me a little bit I was very lucky and so he spoke to me and was like well you know it makes sense for you to do engineering it looks really good and I think a lot of a lot of youngsters would agree that engineering doesn't sound that appealing particularly to women and I didn't really know what it was so um, did a lot of research and kind of was lucky enough to have him to tell me that or convince me that it was good to do mm. Um, but I didn't really know what I was doing until I got to university, which is quite interesting. <laughs> interesting and also, I think, reflective of the vast majority of people. <laughs> Unless you're one of those people who's born knowing they're going to be a doctor kind of thing, have a clear vision, you think most people look at their report card and, yeah, I did best in that, so fuck it. <laughs> I'll commit my life to yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was reading an article the other day about how, you know, the most recent, so 2020 A-level results were released and it's still girls picking more linguistic-based courses and boys picking more STEM-based courses. So from an insider point of view, why do you think it is that boys are picking more STEM-based courses and girls the opposite way around? You know, probably a bit of nature nurture there, but what, what are your thoughts, Anna, on this? Yeah, it's that, that article is really interesting. Um, and I guess it kind of makes sense because it 
it kind of reflects the numbers that you see at things like universities. So at my university, I was at Imperial College London and pretty much all the engineering courses were mainly dominated by males. Um, and I think mine have, might have been 60%, 40%, um, so 40% women, which is actually one of the higher ones. There were some that were sort of 10% women. Um, so it makes sense when you look at what students are choosing um, at school as to what, you know, you, you see reflected in universities. Um, why I think it is, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I think a bit of it is a stigma around engineering. I think people assume that you're going to be, you know, in overalls and getting mucky and you're a, kind of like a mechanic in a way, um, which I, th I think is fair. You know, I think a big gap is that people aren't educated in what engineering really is. And there isn't enough outreach there to explain to students what it is, um, what it entails, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and how brilliant it can be in terms of, you know, data analysis and problem solving compared to what people actually believe it to be, which is, you know, putting your all in one on and getting under a car, which is completely the opposite. So, yeah, I think a massive problem is that there's not enough engagement of young women to really understand it. And I, I think that's recognized and there are programs out there, but there needs to be more. Um, and they need to make sure that they're, they're reaching out to all the schools and that all schools get an equal opportunity to um, kind of have a little insight into what engineering really is. Yeah, the lack of awareness seems to be the root of most inequalities, I think. Um, and, and on your point of, you know, all schools kind of thing, I think girls that succeed are often girls who have been afforded the opportunity to be able to, you know, look, because there's, these things are open and available to people, but it's only open and available for people who know where to look kind of thing half the time. But just wondering, Anna, has working in a male dominated environment affected you at all because statistically engineering is still male dominated but maybe you know in your world first-hand experience maybe you don't see any difference so what is your insider knowledge on that Anna? It's interesting um I've been quite fortunate I think and I've never really noticed a major difference um so where I work now at Arup we have quite an even spread of male and female um I would say I don't actually know what the statistics are but particularly with the people I work with, it's a really good mix. And there are some brilliant men and some brilliant women. And it's all very supportive um, and equal in terms of gender. Um, I have worked before at other engineering companies where it's definitely been more swayed towards men. Um, and it's just noticeable around the office and the numbers of people and perhaps a reaction you would get initially as a woman working there, particularly as a young woman. But I was, like I say, fortunate. That I never had any incidences, but uh, I definitely heard of people who had problems with it. And I think, and I think we've probably touched on this before. It's it's sometimes a matter of personality that um, I'm a little bit maybe a bit more bolshy and quite um, extroverted and outgoing, and so I found it okay to get along with the guys. I've always had a lot of male friends, so I found it okay. But I can see why for some women it would be intimidating, or perhaps they wouldn't be received quite as well, um, and why that challenge would be there. Yeah, for someone like me who's worked in a heavenly 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 it is heavenly heavily female dominated environment i wonder if i would find it difficult to sort of navigate a male uh, dominated industry because partly you know is that because i'm just used to working with a lot of women and the way that we interact with each other partly is it personality you know do i have quote unquote more stereotypically feminine qualities whereas you might have more stereotypically masculine qualities and i say and put emphasis on stereotypically because just because these qualities, you know, being bullshit, as you said, or confident are attributed towards men 
doesn't mean that they are simply men's qualities because a lot of me thinks, well, it's just simply that women haven't had the opportunity to be able to express those kind of behaviours or personality traits. And, you know, it's similar for men because typically female characteristics have been seen as bad or weak. Men haven't been able to express that, such as showing emotion. And now that it's seen as, oh yeah, actually men are human. They can express themselves. It's more acceptable. So it's not inherently female to be emotional. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think it's it's um it's kind of having the personality that perhaps yeah you would stereotype a bit more with men. And I think I grew up with two older brothers, um, and so I always grew up in a household where you had to sort of you know fight your own corner, um, which was great fun. But it meant that I was I found it easy to get on with men, and I was used to being maybe in a situation where you felt like you were isolated as, as the only female. And so I reacted okay to it. But I can imagine, yeah, for you, if you're if you're used to working with women all the time, to go into a male environment is very, very different. Um, and I think being exposed to it has probably, without even realizing, changed my personality to perhaps be a little bit more defensive, perhaps be a bit of, a little bit more bolshy than I normally would be, because you sort of feel a bit more of a need to prove yourself. And from speaking to other women who are in engineering, who are in consulting, there is that kind of feeling that you have to you have to prove yourself a bit more. You have to have a strong personality to be heard. Um, and I'm sure we've all read articles and discussions about the fact that the women are seen as being a little bit aggressive if they're like that, whereas men tend to be seen as being a bit more um, authoritative and, and a bit more of a leader. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely have times, at times I've tried to pull back a bit and be like, okay, Anna, you don't need to be defensive. You don't need to stick up for yourself quite as much. People will listen to you and aren't judging you for being a woman, but it's, it's, it's hard to, um, to sometimes get that stereotype out of your head, I think. And you yes. feel like you're prejudged before you arrive. Mm. Apparently, there's a really high dropout rate of women engineers in that, they, you know, they, they get the job and then they stop being engineers. And there's probably a myriad of reasons behind that. One of them is most likely to be that they have children um, and childcare isn't sufficient. So... <laughs> I guess, you know, we're encouraging a lot of women to get into engineering and very clearly girls are interested and are capable of doing it, have the right skills, the personality. But then once they get there, it's not quite fulfilling um, the needs of women. I'm wondering, you know, what have you experienced in the sense of support for you as a female engineer? Or equally, what would you like to see in engineering to help support women stay there? I think that, I mean, there are definitely schemes out there which are fantastic and obviously just need to be more widespread and more talked about. So um, I did an internship at university and the company that I interned with um, had a sort of crash there. So there was an area for childcare where when you arrived at work, there was somewhere that you could drop drop your kids off from work. And that was kind of a, a way of them supporting women more. Um, and I think things like the, there's a women in engineering network, um, which is fantastic. I think it's all across the UK and that's meant to be supporting women, um, giving women different contacts in engineering and giving them role models, giving them leaders that they can look to and say, you know, this woman has a successful career. She has children and she's bossing it. She's doing really well and giving women that, that belief that they can do it. Um, so things like that initiative are fantastic. And I think, you know, more of that, um, is brilliant. Um, yeah, and I totally agree with the need for more of it and just continuously promote it. There, actually, I think it was on Radio 4, Women's Hour, actually, there's a playwright and novelist, Jackie Kay, who said you can't really see 
who you want to be unless you see yourself reflected imaginatively, whether that be in theatre or in poetry or in literature. And actually, I think you can say the same for your work or anything you do in life. It is difficult to see your options, your opportunity, if it's not displayed to you in the first place, you know? And so I do think it's really important to have women be like, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, and I'm so successful doing it. And I think um, one of my colleagues actually said to me that um, it's it's obviously recognised that sometimes because women feel this need to be a bit more bolshy and pushing forward, um, they sometimes can struggle to get on with each other. And so you find that women in business tend to be referred to as a bit more catty or, you know, mm-hmm. to get up to work at a high level. They, you know, they, they feel like they're sort of fighting over each other. And perhaps that's because mm-hmm. there aren't as many women represented at a higher level. And so they feel like there's only one space available. And, and my colleague said to me that she believes that one of the most important things is to make sure that we have that network close to us so not just in these big initiatives across the uk but within our own team that we're supporting each other and that we're reaching out to the other women and we're saying hey you're having a bad day let's talk about it you know we Mm. we have a team here we have a friendship here Mm. and we'll support each other and if someone's got issues with childcare, they can you know ring up a colleague and talk to them and sort something out and between us we we can manage it as a team we don't have to see it as like you're you know you're an individual and you're having to fight your way in and prove yourself to everybody um, we're all kind of in it together and the more of us that, that do that and support it, the, the more it will encourage other younger women to come into it. It's like a new approach, you know, now that women are included. If it was dog eat dog before, now it's we come as a collective pack and we're going to take over. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. That's great. I'm really lucky. My team are fantastic at work. And um, yeah, we've got some really cool, really strong women in there. So amazing. that's definitely helped. So you bloody love being an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any advice that you'd give to girls thinking about doing engineering or maybe women who are taking a career change? You know, how can they get into engineering? I would say absolutely go out and look at what's out there um, learn as much as you can about it and see if you can get an experience in, you know, for, for younger girls, maybe get a work experience in a role, reach out to companies that are always willing to take people on because, you know, this is the, the future generation, right? You want to, you want to show them what we do and get them really motivated. Um, and I think even if you're not sure about it, give it a go because, engineering is not always what people believe it to be and it also opens a million doors to Mm, lots of other things it teaches you some fantastic skills which are transferable to so many different roles in other jobs and so it's so worthwhile taking that time to um, really consider what it is and if it's something you would enjoy and I think yeah a lot a lot of women would be surprised I was I was really lucky that um, when I went to university I was on um, a women only scholarship program which was supported by the company that I went for my internship with. And so that encouraged, I think there were maybe 20 of us in each year um, who were supported by this company, were offered positions in the internship. And we were given mentors who we could then talk to and get advice from about how to progress or just just little problems we might be having in the company or in university. Um, And yeah, schemes like that are brilliant. And I literally found that from just Googling it. So (laughs) go out and look for it. Or Google it in your case. (laughs) So your current job role title is? So my actual job role is an energy um, engineer or an energy consultant. Um, And yeah, I work in the team, like you mentioned before, that is with um, energy cities and climate change. So we do sort of urban development. We do low carbon energy projects. Um, lots of decarbonisation stuff and plenty of work on policies and, um, you know, getting strategies and roadmaps in place for how um, anything from like 
a small development to a council, to a city, to nationally and internationally, how to reach net zero. So super interesting. Um, I absolutely love it. I'm really, really passionate about climate change. So I'm very fortunate that I love my job and I love going to work. Um, But yeah. I'm so jealous, Anna. (laughs) It makes me want to turn back the clock and do engineering it just sounds so fascinating um but before we go so we do have to wrap this up sadly and i've enjoyed it so much um can you tell the listeners about the lush bath bomb story that you told me previously because i think it's really relatable with regards to how different people choose different self-care methods yeah so <laughs> i used to work for lush um actually a very short-term period i was like a christmas temp when i was at school um, and they're a fantastic company. I actually love Lush and I buy products from them. Like I mentioned, my shampoo is from Lush. Um, you know, they're all about the right ethics. They're all about quality, no animal testing and reducing waste. So when I worked for them, I was like, this is absolutely fantastic. And I worked in a sales role. Um, and for those of you who've been into Lush, they, they tend to be a little bit pushy. They're super knowledgeable and helpful. But if you walk in, they'll sell to you. To say the least. I, know. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, just the smell in there is quite overwhelming in general. Nice. But I was given this role where I had to sell to people these bath bombs and, you know, you're, you're given these products that are, you know, covered in color and perhaps glitter and all they've got on them is all about self-care and they probably are the ideal icon for self-care and what people define as that through what they see through social media um, and what's kind of portrayed to society as self-care. And so, you know, we were selling products and saying, oh, you know, you'll, you'll have this bath, this bath bomb and it releases, you know, these smells of vanilla and honey and it will relax you and the lavender will make you go to sleep. And it's so perfect. And, you know, you'll have your moment where you sit in the bath and you enjoy yourself. Um, and I think that kind of tried to convince me that that was the idea of what self-care was and what would make me feel really good and help me to relax. And so I remember from working at Lush, you know, we got tested products to try out so that we understood the products well or we got like a discount and I had loads of lush stuff and I was sitting in the bath and I was trying out these bath bombs and I sat there and I was like come on Anna this is it this is this is you looking after yourself you're gonna feel great this is completely what self-care is and you're gonna be a new woman after this (laughs) and I'd literally be sat there for five minutes and I'd be like oh my god I'm so bored what to do what do you do in a bath what do I do and I was like look at the wall and I was like do I read a book it's a bit wet I can't really read a book this is awful and then I just got out Um, I do that (laughs) and it has to be said that since not waking at Lush I have not bought a bath bomb (laughs) and it's this idea that like is kind of posted to people and you're told that Mm. this is what self-care is and this is what will make you feel good um and so people believe it and people, you know, I think it's the same with other things. Like it doesn't have to be about having a bath with a bath bomb. And some people do enjoy that and find it relaxing and that's fine. Yeah. Um, but other people will be told, you know, you'll feel good if you wear loads of makeup. You'll feel good if you do your hair or why don't you go for a massage? And it's this whole thing of like being told what will make you feel mm. good versus just actually yes. finding out for yourself what that is. Mm. Um, and asking yourself, well, what actually makes you feel good? You know, yes. I would much rather, you know, go and bake a cake and then sit with a cup of tea and read a book, then sit in a bath with a bath bomb. Um, <laughs> or go for a run through a muddy field with a really good friend and just have a really good chat about the world and put the world to rights. Mm, yeah. Like, it's, it's completely an individual experience of what you define as self-care. And it shouldn't be what society tells you. It should be what makes you feel good in yourself and what makes you happy. Absolutely. Because um, that's what caring for yourself really is, in my opinion. Well, that's how and I see it. I wholeheartedly agree, Anna. And again, it comes down to the whole listen to yourself, give yourself some time and space to work out what it is that will nurture you, what will help you 
look after yourself and to self-care. I hear this all the time in yoga, actually, that, you know, the wellness world has just rammed yoga down everyone's throats as like a cure for everything. You know, got anxiety? Yoga. Your cat is ill? Yoga. Bad haircut? Yoga. You missed the bus? Yoga. (laughs) (laughs) And because it's said so much, I think people feel pressured to do that, to live that certain self-care sort of vibe (laughs) that's so popular and actually... Why do anything that's supposed to be nurturing you if it's not nurturing you, you know, what you like, your personality, your body, your soul? Yeah, 100%. Completely agree with that. And it does apply to anything like running. I hear so many people who talk to me and they're like, Anna, I've taken up running, but I cannot stand it. I don't know what to do. How do I motivate myself? <laughs> yes, yes. And my answer quite a lot of the time is like, just don't do it then. <laughs> <Stop> it. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be a runner. Not everyone has to go out on runs or jogs or whatever. You don't have to go out and do a half marathon. That's mm. Just because other people are doing it doesn't mean that that's what's going to make you happy. Exactly. And if you've tried it and you've given it a good go, you know, you've set yourself a challenge and you're still not motivated to get out and do it. Choose a different sport. <laughs> it doesn't have to be for you. No, and also it doesn't have to be a sport. Although obviously people should exercise, it's good for your health, well-being, etc. If we're talking strictly self-care here, you know, little things that you're doing, ritualistic things you're doing each day to help you sort of manage and get through. If you're adding something that's causing you more stress and anxiety, put it to bed. <laughs> and on that note of putting to bed, we have your last two questions, Anna. What advice would you give to your younger self? For a start, just stop straightening your hair on it. Just let it go. Um, <laughs> that would be the starting. Um, what would I advise myself? Yeah, it's a tough one. I think a lot would be about open-mindedness and trying new things and not, yeah, again, it's cliche, but not letting myself fall into a stereotype. Um, I told myself I wasn't sporty when I was younger. I actually told myself I wasn't sporty because I was like, I'm academic. I fall in that category. That's what everyone tells me I am. Therefore, I won't be sporty because you can't be both. Um, and I think since starting university, going to a university where there are a lot of clever people and all of them were so good at sport, I was like, well, that's just clearly not true. And I, I wish I'd kind of believed it a bit more as a, as a child and embraced it a bit. And I did some sports, um, but I always just accepted I'd always just be me- mediocre at them. Um, but I think... I think a main one which I've learned over the years is to just surround yourself with the people that make you feel good. And I think I mentioned this before, just be with the people that are the kind of person you want to be. And I think you end up more like them um, the more time you spend with them. Like, Aren't we all something like a mixture of the five top people we spend time with? Is Um, that true? I think so. I've heard that somewhere. It might be from a film. It might not be true. (laughs) I like it, though. (laughs) Me too. It fits. So my final question for you, Anna, what do you think the role of women is today? Yeah, it's such an interesting question, isn't it? Um, And I'm I'm probably giving an answer that you wouldn't necessarily think of or think I'd say, but I don't think there is a role for women. I don't think that we're defined by being a woman anymore. I honestly don't feel like that. I I plan to have what I would deem as a successful career. I plan to try and be good at my job and always keep learning. I plan to have children and I don't plan for either of those two to get in the way of the other. Um, at the same time, I plan on carrying on triathlon. And again, I want to, I want to be able to have children, but I don't want that to be a reason for me to stop doing sport. And I think obviously gender plays a role in, in who we are at times and it can play a role in what we decide to do, but it doesn't have to. And I think so many people are proving that now that you don't have to identify to whatever gender you you're given. Um, 
and it shouldn't change necessarily what your role is. I think we all have an individual role that's caused by our personality and by our experiences. And, you know, that could be have children, don't have children, workloads, don't work at all. Um, you know, aim to go out and change society and put out brilliant policies and save the world or just live in your bubble and make the people around you happy. And that is not defined by what gender you are. It's completely defined by who you are and what you want to do. Um, I think the one thing that I would say for women in particular at the moment is that we have a role to remove these stigmas of having roles. And that is all that is left. And for people like you and I and people in probably the younger generation still have a bit of a battle to do to get rid of the idea that women have a different role. Um, and I think when that's done and when people start to be more accepting, I think it then is completely just defined by you. Oh, my God. What a bloody cracking answer. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, Anna, you are, you're so inspiring. Oh, thanks, Um <laughs> You honestly have inspired me so much just, just to get off my ass and exercise and just be a bit more kick-ass, really. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I'll definitely be sharing that meat-free meat recipe on the website and Instagram too, so thank <laughs> you for your time, Anna. Thanks, Boo. This has been so much fun. It's been so lovely to talk to you. And thank you for having me. This is such an honour. Well, I certainly felt like the honoured one getting to pick Anna's brains. This is a wrap of our first ever episode of Women Who Self Care. So if you enjoyed it, please, please share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Our website is www.womenwhoselfcare.org. Our Instagram handle is Women Who Self Care. Our Twitter handle is Women W Self Care. And Anna's Instagram, if you'd like to follow her, is Anna Zero Lawson. You're listening to Women Who Self Care, and my name is Boo.